Before we look at God's word this morning, let's let's go to him in prayer. Our heavenly Father, we're so thankful that we could be here today. God, we know that you there are no accidents in your economy that you have brought us here to hear your word and we pray, God, not just that I could preach a good sermon, but we pray for the word of the Lord to come to us this day. Lord, we pray for your spirit to work in our hearts in the power of your greatness, O oh God, to do the work that needs to be done in our hearts and our minds for us to hear from you and to respond by faith. Oh, we thank you, O oh God, and we ask these things, God, not just for our sakes or that we might be blessed through them, but God, that you would be known, that the world would see that God is real we don't just come and sit in a room on a, one day a week because it's a neat thing to do or it's a tradition. But we come because you are the true and the living God. And may the world know that. We pray in your name. Amen. You know, the, we've been going through the, the book of Ephesians, obviously. And I've entitled this series on Ephesians, The Overwhelming Grace of God. Because Paul clearly tells us that a mighty work of God, about the mighty work of God that he does in the life of those who trust in him. But this letter is also about the church. God, you know, takes people who live life contrary to him, you know, living to fulfill their own desires and their own wants and their own dreams rather than living with God as their focus and exalting him and glorifying him. And God saves those people from their sin and he gives them a new outlook on life by changing their, their hearts so that they can love God and they can love other people rather than loving themselves first and foremost. But, but when God saves people, as we've seen here in the first couple of chapters in Ephesians, he saves them to be part of a church not just individual Christians. And if there's anything that the American church needs to hear, it's that. That we're not just individual Christians, but that, um, that we, where we just sort of intersect with the church, maybe on Sunday morning or, or just here and there. But we are the church. That part of our salvation is this corporate sense, this life that we have together. The Bible refers to it as koinonia or fellowship. With, with one another. And so Ephesians is very much about the church as well. And it may be worth noting that when Paul talks about the church and, and about becoming members of the church, um, it doesn't mean that you do that by going to church. You know, no more than you become a baseball player by simply going to a baseball stadium. That doesn't make you a baseball player. But unfortunately, I think a lot of people think that uh, th this way, that you go to church and that makes you a Christian. And if you don't go to church, then you're, you're not a Christian. Uh, but they think that going to church is what makes the difference. Now, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, gathering with God's people is part of who we are. And, uh, and it is important. But simply attending church doesn't make you a Christian. You don't become a Christian by going to church, but by coming to Jesus Christ and faith in him. Now, there, there is a sign that I see from time to time, and whenever I see it, I sort of chuckle. 
Um, and it also sort of makes me think about Jesus, which may sound a little bit strange when I tell you what the sign says. But have you seen those signs or billboards that say, we buy ugly houses? You seen those? Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I suppose what that means is, is that if your house is in such bad shape that nobody will buy it, these people will buy it and they'll fix it up and then they'll turn around and they'll flip it and I guess and make a profit. And in one sense, not, not completely in the same way, but in one sense, Jesus pretty much does the same thing for, for us. He's not like the, the prospective home buyer that travels around with an agent looking for just the perfect home that's just all fixed up and tries to buy it for as cheap as he can. But instead, I guess you could say that Jesus' motto is, I buy ugly souls. I buy ugly souls. You know, he, he doesn't seek to pay the lowest price possible, but rather he pays the highest price imaginable for these souls as well. The Apostle Paul says uh, that you were bought with a price. And then Peter talks about what that price was. He said, you have been ransomed. That is, you have been purchased. He says, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That Jesus gave his life that we might uh, know him. Not because we're attractive or we're intelligent or we're good in some way, but because he buys ugly houses, he buys ugly souls. And so what Paul wrote to the Corinthians is very true, I think, of us even as Christians, that he said, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. In fact, I think a lot like ugly houses, when Jesus bought us, we were covered in guilt and the filth of our sin. And that's why Paul says in Romans 5, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us, and then while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's the good news of, of Christianity, that we are saved not because we're so attractive or we're worthy. We're saved because of the compassion uh, and, and grace of a loving God in Christ Jesus. And, and the best news of all is not only that Jesus buys ugly houses, but he fixes them up and then he fills them with his Holy Spirit so that the Father of glory can come and live in those houses. Unlike the people who buy ugly houses and flip them for a profit, Jesus, when he purchases us, he makes it such that the Father will live and dwell and abide there. And that's what he says uh, uh, in, as we come to the end of this part of chapter 2 in Ephesians 2. It says, in Christ or in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see the Trinity there? In him, that is in Christ, it becomes a dwelling place for God the Father by the Holy Spirit. So you see that the work that God does in the hearts of his people, he brings to bear all of the Godhead upon the hearts and the souls of those that he saves. I think it's so easy for us as Christians to do uh, to sort of lose track of what it is that God is doing in our hearts as he saves us. You know, I think it's so easy to, to think that the focus of sending Jesus Christ was merely to save us from our sins and take away the wrath of God that we deserve. I mean, don't we use that language all the time? Jesus came, kids, to die for your sins, right? 
And so we think, well, that's the end of it. But is it? You know, why, to what end did Jesus come to die for our sins? Why did he have to deal with our sins? And I want to suggest to you that it was so that we could have fellowship, so that we could have communion, we could have an intimate relationship with God. Now, brothers and sisters, my question for us today is, is that how we view the Christian life? You know, as we get up each and every day, do we get up with the idea, I get to commune with God today. I get to walk with him as, as Adam and Eve walked with him in the cool of the day. I get to lay my burdens upon the Lord as I'm wrestling and struggling with things. I can come to him and I can pray and I can ask him on behalf of myself or my family or my church that God might work in such a way. Because you see, what God is at work, not only in our lives individually, but corporately as a church as well. And that's what Paul's talking about here today. But how does God build us together as a church in such a way that we become the place where God once again dwells with his people, where he walks with them? How does God accomplish this among such a diverse group of people? I mean, you look at our church alone. We have all kinds of demographics. We have singles. We have empty nesters. We have we have uh, large families. We have average size families. I don't know what what you call them. We you know we have all kinds. We have white collar. We have blue collar. We're a very diverse group of people, and yet God brings us together and makes us into a building, a place where He will dwell. So how does He do that? Well, I want us to see three things, and it's really three pictures that Paul paints. Here, First of all, God brings us under his authority when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. You see that in the first part of verse 19. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, there's a lot of talk today in our country about a wall. Should we build a wall? Should we not build a wall around our borders so that we can keep out illegal aliens? And I'm not going to get into that discussion this morning. But what Paul is saying is, is that you as Gentiles, remember, there was the Jews who were God's people, and then there was everybody else in the world, and that was the Gentiles. Okay, the Gentiles, they used to be like that, that they were people living amongst uh, God's people, but who held their citizenship somewhere else. A lot like an illegal alien might, where they live in this country, but they're really not citizens of this country. But Paul says that now these Gentiles, these Gentile Christians are no longer like that. When they placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they came under the authority of God. They were made citizens of his kingdom. And as citizens of that kingdom, they now have all the rights and the privileges and the responsibilities of the citizenship of the kingdom of God. Now, what are those uh, rights and privileges that we have? Well, first of all, God rules over our hearts. He begins, he defends us. We see that, that God is our king. Where we were once driven by our own passions and desires, God has written his laws into our minds and our hearts so that we can live the way that God has created us to live. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about how much of your life are you living out, or how much of the things that you do and you say and you think really come from your struggle with sin? And how much of that really comes from what God has created you to live and how he has, has saved you?
You know, maybe you've had someone say to you, you know, you're, you're such a good person. You know, or you're such a kind person. Or you know what? You are so compassionate. Now, some of you are sitting here thinking, yeah, nobody's ever said that to me. But even if they have said that to you, most likely you have thought, yeah, if you only knew. If you only knew what my heart was, was, was really like. And what they're seeing is not you. They're not seeing me. What they're seeing is, is the work of God's law that is written on our hearts and put into our minds. Uh, Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 through 34 in, in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 12 God said, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. For I will have I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. You see, in the the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke of his father watching over every hair of our head. And so as citizens of God's kingdom, we don't have to worry. We don't have to wrestle with anxiety we know that we are in a kingdom where our Father and our Lord will watch over us. As citizens, it means that we have the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who rules in us by his love. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, you know, we've been quoting that on Sunday mornings in our affirmation of faith in question 26, says that Jesus executes his office as a king by subduing us to himself, in other words, by taking our wills that, that we want to do and subduing that to do what his will is, in, in ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and all our enemies. We see that work that God is doing. He gives us freedom not to have to live by sin and live in a way that's clunky and odd and contrary to the way God's created us to live, but he gives us the freedom to, as he rules over our hearts to live in a very different way. But there's also responsibilities. You know, I don't know kids if they still, still teach this in school, but when I was young, you know, which is back when the dinosaurs roamed the earth, uh, they had this saying that says, with every privilege comes a what? Responsibility. Or becomes an obligation. Now, I think our country has gotten away from that kind of thinking, but that's very true. And And as we look at once again, at the Shorter Catechism, question uh, 39, it asks, what is the duty which is required, which God requires of man? And it says, the duty which God requires of man is obedience to his revealed will. It's just for us to do what God's word says. And, and we are to trust and love and serve God. And we express that through obedience to the word of God in the Bible. And, and there is great delight and joy. But sometimes it seems very odd. You know, in a, in a world where our schedules are so busy and we have so much to do. And I don't know about you, but my to-do list never ends. Okay, never ends. The only thing it does is it gets longer. Okay, and in a world like that, it just seems very contrary to logic to take the first part of my day and to spend time with God in his word and reading the word of God and in praying and being still. I got so much to do. It just doesn't make sense. Or it just it seems odd to gather at the end of the day as a household or as a family to read God's word and to pray and to worship. Many families aren't even sitting down to eat together. And it just seems odd 
contrary to logic, to sit down and to spend that time as a family. Or, or maybe it can seem very counterintuitive to give at least 10% of everything that you have to God and not just give it to him, but off the top. We're not talking about what's if it's left over, but we're saying, Lord, we'll commit that to you. We'll give that to the church to do the work of God. That just doesn't make sense in a world where, where we're so strapped financially. It just doesn't make sense. But you see, there's always a clash between the kingdoms of God and the kingdom of this world. You know, and just like, just think about the alien, okay, and I'm not even going to say the illegal alien. Let's say somebody becomes an American citizen. Okay, they go through the process and they're an American citizen. And, and you, you're, you're talking about Christmas or something. And, and you're saying, this is, you know, what we do in America with Christmas. And they say, well, that's neat. You know, I know back in my country, we always did thus and such. Or, or maybe you say a phrase and they're like, oh, that's a neat phrase. Actually, the way we say it in such and such country is we say this. And there's a sense in which there's those two kingdoms. Their citizenship is in America but they grew up in a different country. And it can be like that as Christians. It can seem very odd. There's the kingdom of this world and the way that the world does everything. And then there's the way that God commands us to live. There's promises that he has given us and told us to live by. And as we live by those things, we look very different from the world. Why? Where's our citizenship? It's in heaven. It's not here upon this earth. Now, we live here but we live here sort of as, as, as aliens. Um, I think it's interesting that we are consistently tempted to question the validity of our citizenship and the way the things that God commands us to do. Because if you look at the world, the world doesn't see the kingdom of God. I mean, think about Jesus when he was on trial before Pilate. Okay, and Pilate's like, you're a king. You don't have kingly stuff. You don't have an army. You don't have a treasury. You, you know, you don't have a crown that I see that shows that you're a king. And Jesus says, well, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, his kingdom is very different. Now, that doesn't make Jesus' kingdom inferior. As a matter of fact, I would suggest to you that it's superior to the kingdoms of this world because he has an, uh, a heavenly kingdom. You know, Caesar rules over the body, but Jesus rules over our souls. Uh, worldly kings may run the affairs of this life, but Christ rules over for all eternity. It's a very different kind of kingdom. It's a more powerful kingdom. And that's why Paul, who's a natural-born citizen, and I cannot explain to you how, uh, what a blessing it was to be a Roman citizen. You had certain rights and privileges as a Roman citizen. As a matter of fact, people who weren't born a Roman citizen would pay large sums of money just so they could try to get their citizenship. It was that much of an advantage. And yet Paul says, I was born a Roman citizen. And he said, but he said, uh, that's nothing compared to my citizenship in heaven. As a matter of fact, in Philippians chapter 3, uh, verse 20 and 21, Paul says, but our citizenship, that is as Christians, is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like a glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's the rule of our king, is that he puts everything under his feet, everything under his authority, and we get to live as his citizens. But not only as his citizens, but also we see at the last part of the verse, we are members of the household of God. We 
God not only brings us under his authority, but he brings us into his family. Um, he says uh, that uh, just as blood unites a family, so God's spirit unites all believers as fellow members of the household of God. That God should make us members of his household is just amazing. I think we just sort of take that for granted. You know, it would be enough for us to praise God for all eternity in heaven if he simply took away our sins and paid the wrath that was due us for our sins, right? But God says, I'm not going to stop there. He says, I'm not only going to make you citizens, I'm not only going to take away your sins, but I'm going to adopt you into my family. I'm going to choose you and I'm going to make you my children. And so the king of this kingdom that we belong to is also our father. But just as we are fellow citizens with other Christians, so we are members together with the household of God. And that's really the emphasis here. Yes, the fatherhood of God is implied in these verses, but I would suggest that it's a brotherhood of man. As he's been talking about the differences between Jews and Gentiles, how they hated each other, how they were separate from one another, but now they are part of the family of God. They're part of the Heavenly Father's family. And here Paul uh, wants to uh, stress that brotherhood that we are part of a brotherhood that stretches across all racial, all national, all political, all cultural barriers, and that is to be expressed in our love for Christians, um, all Christians, but especially in our local bodies. But we are to love one another even across denominational lines. Now, sometimes when you're around one another, uh, even as Christians, we're prone to, to hurt one another and to wound one another and to offend one another and to leave one another even with very big wounds, with lasting hurts even, right? Brothers and sisters, do you do that sometimes? Do you guys really offend your, your sister or your brother or you make them mad or you hurt them and they become angry with you? It's like that even in the church, but the, re the reason Jesus commands his disciples or his followers to love one another in John 13, uh, and Paul exhorts the Ephesians to bear with one another in love in Ephesians 4.2, it was to impress upon us as God's people how seriously our Heavenly Father took the unity and the peace of his family. And as we take on the family resemblance, does your, do you, does your family have sort of an identity? A resemblance. The Frankses, we are sort of a protective group, okay? You know, especially of our women folk. We are, are very much so that way. If you know a Franks, you're like, wow, you guys are intense. But that's just sort of who we are. That's sort of the, the family resemblance. And your family may have some characteristic that people are like, oh, this family? Oh, yeah, they're like this. Well, it's like that for Christians as well. You know, as we take on the family resemblance of our Heavenly Father, uh, when there is a grace in our relationship with each other and a, and a long-suffering, a patience with each other, when we are willing to admit our sins and, and ask for forgiveness and grant forgiveness, such love will cover over a multitude of sins. And not only does that strengthen the bonds that we have with one another as Christians, but it's also a message to the world that such love 
couldn't have come from our own hearts, but instead it only could come from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who has poured out his love into our hearts. And then we bear witness to the world that there is a God and Jesus Christ is his son and his power to redeem and change us is immeasurable. You see, that's what we see as we think about uh, uh, being under God's authority and being part of his family. As people walk in this church and they see us and they see the diversity and how we're very different in many ways. And yet they see that the unity that is here. We see people who you would naturally think of becoming friends or even just talking with one another. You don't have to become best buds. But as you're talking with one another and you're seeking to meet one another's needs and you're praying for each other and you're just living life together. There is that sense of unity. They go, wow, this is different. This is not what I see out in the world. The world is talking about how we need unity, racial reconciliation, all these things. But they're just struggling to see that become a reality. But as they come into the church and they see that, they go, God must exist. And my friends, that's the kind of witness that cannot be refuted. It's a display of the power of God that's worked in his people. And then third and finally, we see not only that We're under God's authority and we're part of God's family, but also he brings us into relationship with him in verses 20 through 22. Look at verse 21. It talks about how we are being fitted together into a holy temple uh, in the Lord. Now, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, uh, the individual believer is called the temple of the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, the local congregation, the local church like Kirk of the Plains, is called the temple of God. But what he has in picture here in Ephesians 2, 21 is really the universal church. Uh, the church in its uh, trans-historical, trans-generational identity. We are the holy temple of God. Now, what's so extraordinary about that, if you remember the Old Testament, what is the greatest visible symbol that God dwelt amongst his people. Was it not, first of all, the tabernacle that God had set up and that when Israel camped in the wilderness, that they were camping by tribes, they were living in tents by tribes, but in the center was what? The tabernacle. And you would see the Shekinah glory of God descend upon that tabernacle and you knew that God was with his people. Well, eventually that that tent, that tabernacle became a building. It became a temple. And here it is in the center of Jerusalem, up on this mound, on this this hill. And you could see it from everywhere. And you would see the Shekinah glory. And so for, for a thousand years, the temple stood as that visible reminder of the Shekinah glory of God as he would come down and he would be with his people. Now, the word that Paul uses here is not just for the temple in general as the whole thing. He's really actually signifying the Holy of Holies. And you remember that? The Holy of Holies was the tall part of the temple that you could see from everywhere. There's a curtain there and only the high priest could go in and only once a year and only as he was covered with the blood. And you remember what I talked about, about the Gentiles, how you had the Holy of Holies, the priest could go into that. Then you had an area where the other priests could minister before the Lord. And then you had an area for the men and the women. And then if you went down these steps through a barrier, a big wall, and then down some more steps, there was an area where the Gentiles could be. They couldn't be anywhere close to God's people. They were sort of on the, the outskirts, okay? 
But do you know what he's saying now? But he's saying now, you Gentiles are bricks, you are stones in a building that Christ is building, which is the Holy of Holies where God dwells with his people. You remember Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, see that temple? He said, I can tear it down and rebuild it in three days. And of course, he was indicating that he was going to be raised from the dead in three days. Uh, and that in his resurrection, he was going to build a new temple, not made with stones, but made with, with people. And Paul says, you are that temple. You are the holy of holies where God will come and dwell with his people. And he says, not only that, but that you are also that temple that's built on the foundation. You know, a foundation obviously gives stability and strength to a building. And God's temple, his spiritual dwelling place, is founded upon the apostles and the prophets. Now, there's all kinds of different views as that phrase, apostles and prophets. And I won't go into that uh, this morning. But he's, he's really saying that uh, through these men, these apostles and prophets, that God revealed and he declared God's saving revelation uh, in its covenant fullness. He was proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the foundation for the church and for being built together. But he says also Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He's sort of that, that linchpin that, uh, of the building. If you remember right, the cornerstone is what made everything hold together. It's what kept it straight. If the cornerstone got off whack, the whole building was off whack. And what he's saying is, is that Christ, Christ in his person and his work is what keeps his temple solid and straight. I think it's interesting that if you look at cults who want to claim that they're Christian but they're not, what's the one teaching that they always attack the person and the work of Jesus Christ because if you can do away with that then you then you throw the, the whole building off score when you remove or tamper with the building's cornerstone the building will collapse and the church will always at its most compelling but the church is always at its most compelling when it's unashamedly and boldly proclaiming the cross of Jesus Christ you know, I, I think it's interesting in the church today, our greatest problem is not that we're antiquated and that we have nothing to say to our culture, but that we're compromising. Today, even in our own denomination, we want to talk about social issues and we want to talk about these things. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. We need to always be bringing the gospel to bear upon these things. But if the social issues become more important than the gospel, if they become more important than focusing upon Jesus Christ then we just got off kilter a little bit as a denomination. And we need to be looking at these social issues through the cross of Jesus Christ and the work that he has done. And, and we see here that Paul says in verse 21 that the whole building grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, that grows in several ways. First of all, it grows as more and more people come to faith in Jesus Christ, they're added to the church, they come in, and you see the church getting larger, the church getting bigger, and, and God dwelling with those people. But there, there's another sense in which that growth is not of, of quantity or numbers, but it's really of quality, that it is to be 
Uh, the growth that God honors and desires the most is that of, of holiness. Now, we're not going to take the time to look there, but later on we're going to be coming to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, where it sort of talks about that, that that, that work is that his temple is holy, it's set apart, and that as we grow, that we are to grow in such a way as not to grieve the Holy Spirit, uh, but to honor the Lord. So we do need to be gr growing numerically, but we also need to be growing in holiness as well. But sadly, oftentimes uh, our focus is so much more on how many people we have in church and, and how many people we have on our rolls or how big our budgets are or what all those. And those things mean nothing uh, if we are not also focusing upon how people grow in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have the responsibility to all we, we can as God's temple to be pure and welcoming and, uh, and a dwelling place for the Spirit of God to be. Brothers and sisters, what I'm trying to say is this, that we have to be very careful because here again, we're not just talking about individual Christians. Paul is talking about collectively about the church. And as the church, we need to be careful that we're walking in, in holiness, that we let not pride um, fill our hearts or that we have a sense of resentment or bitterness towards other people or that we are a church that has a very complaining spirit or that we're lukewarm or we're complacent in who we are. You know, I, I just think, uh, you know, that 90 percent of, of the people of God can be living as God has called them to live. And yet 10 percent of a church uh, who profess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ can be also professing to be Christians and yet walking after the things of the world, giving themselves to, uh, to, to lust, giving themselves to um, desiring the things of this world, whatever it might be, and in doing so will dishonor God. It sort of reminds me of Achan. Do you remember Achan? Where he, he uh, took things from the Lord that God told him not to take. And who suffered because of that? Yes, Achan suffered. But actually the whole Nathan, nation of Israel suffered. And our sin affects one another because we are this building. We are this body. We are a family. We are in a kingdom. And it is our great privilege to be that living temple of God. But it is also our great responsibility. And so let us pray. Let us pray for the church. Let us pray for our local church. Let us pray for the church at large. You know, we can sit here in our doors and we can criticize other churches. And yet that does no good for people to see that God dwells with his people. But let us pray for those churches instead that all of us might walk in holiness, that people would see God in our midst and that they would glorify him. Amen. Let's take just a moment to, to bow our heads and and just think about the things that we've heard preached this morning before I pray for us. Lord, we love your kingdom. We love your family. Uh, we, are, we are just uh, stunned, just overwhelmed that you would make us your dwelling place. Uh, Lord, through your church today, as imperfect as she is, as diverse as she is, um, that still you are working to build her together to be a place where you would be glorified. A Lord, a place where we could have fellowship with you.
Um, Father, I pray that you would help us to to value and to love your church as you love your church. And God, I pray that you would help us as as a local congregation, a part of that church, to to demonstrate this love. God, we're not perfect and we're going to hurt one another. We're going to offend one another. We're going to be tempted to be selfish at times. And we're not going to want to be part of the church because it doesn't meet our needs or whatever the situation may be. But I pray, Lord, that these things would not be the case. That, that God, you would um, help us to see who we are in Jesus Christ as part of your body and, and the work that you are doing in us. And we pray that this would be manifest to the world around us. God, I know that that's truly where our delight will be as we obey you. And so help us to do that. And we do pray, Lord, for those that don't know you as their Lord and Savior. Um, God, it doesn't mean that they don't believe that you exist. It doesn't mean that maybe even they don't go to church. But I pray that those that do not have faith in you, that we would have the privilege, God, to share the good news of the gospel with them. And I pray that they would believe and trust in you and enjoy this new life in Jesus Christ, to be set free from the ways of this world. Uh, God, you are so good, and we pray that your name would be glorified. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that we pray these things. Amen.